Whenever we do a Bible study, people love Genesis. It is full of romance and intrigue and lots of other things. Let us pray. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray through these poor words, your living white light might be heard, your living word might be heard, and your light may shine. In Jesus' name, amen. So this past week, I read an article by Ann Powers, a pop music journalist who writes for National Public Radio in the United States. In it, she details a conversation she had with one of her friends, a friend also connected to the music industry. So often, music history seems to include women as important players, she said. Classic rock history, for example, is often told with the Beatles, Rolling Stones, and Led Zeppelin as key players, while women like Janis Joplin seem to be seen as background actors. We came to a conclusion that, in 2017, she writes, will likely not strike no one as a surprise that the general history of popular music is told through the great works of men, and that without a serious revision of the canon, women will always remain on the margins. They'll always remain pushed to the sidelines. In the story of pop music, she argues, men occupy the center while women occupy the periphery, making it the story of men. So she decided to tell the whole story of pop music. Her and her colleague put together a list of the top 150 albums in pop music made by women. In doing so, she argued, it wouldn't be rewriting the history of pop music so much as bringing the hidden parts of the story, or more precisely, the hidden people, hidden women, to the forefront. This way, a fuller, more complete story of pop music could be told, a story that maybe wasn't missing entirely, but one that more often had been put, pushed to the edges. Music, of course, is not the only realm of human culture where women have more often than not been put, pushed to the edges. Art, literature, history, science, more often than not, these are construed as the history of great men. And the Bible, or at least the telling of the Bible, is often no different. As a story of the great faithful acts of men, while well, women are, at best, along for the ride. I've heard this not only from critics of Christianity, but also many women who I love and respect in the church. Many women who are deeply devoted to their faith, but sometimes they have a hard time finding themselves in the story itself, either on the account of the way women are often portrayed or the fact that men often seem to be taking center stage, while women seem appear to, appear to be fated to supporting roles. And, as you may have heard, our scripture passage for this morning doesn't seem like much of a help here at all. We have Jacob, the upstart type A son of Isaac, son of Abraham, who tricked his blind father into blessing him and giving him the family inheritance by dressing like his hairy brother. I mean, I love that. You know, put on this, put on this fur and your, your dad will think that you're your brother Esau. I mean, I love that one. Jacob escapes his brother Esau, who wants him dead for his conniving betrayal, betrayal by running off to live with his uncle Laban. And this is where, where it, we come to in our text. 
When Jacob arrived, Laban gave him a job in the family business tending sheep. And Laban doesn't think that it's fair for Jacob to work for free, though, him being family and all. So Laban asks Jacob what kind of compensation Jacob thinks he should get for all the hard work he's putting in. And here's the sticking part for many of us. Laban has two daughters, Leah, the older, and Rachel, the younger. Jacob's madly in love with Rachel. He's been in love with her since the moment he set eyes on her. So since Jacob doesn't have the money to pay her father outright for Rachel, what scholars call the bride price, Jacob offers to trade him seven years of work in exchange for Rachel. Laban agrees to the deal, and when the time's up, he comes collecting. He wants what he's owed. He's paid seven years for this woman, after all. But if that's not bad enough, fast forward to the wedding night. It's too dark, or there's too much wine or whatever, and Rachel's father, Laban, sneaks Rachel out of the tent that night and sneaks her sister Leah in instead. Long story short, Jacob rolls over the next morning and realize it is, realizes it isn't Leah, or it's Leah, not Rachel beside him in bed. So he's furious because Laban tricked him. And Laban gives him this weak excuse that in his country they don't marry off the younger daughter before the older one. Then he offers to cut Jacob a deal. Take the honeymoon week. Then at the end, you can marry Rachel, but you've got to put in another seven years after that, because we all know Rachel is worth at least, or Leah is worth at least as much as Rachel, seven years. And so Jacob takes the deal. The two women are his, but they're anything but one big, happy, polygamous family. You probably could tell that if you've watched any shows like uh, Sister Wives or, you know, anything on HBO. You probably figured that that might turn out that way, but... As scripture continues, we discover that the two of them jockey for Jacob's favor over pride and place in his household. All that ever Le Leah ever wanted, it says, is for Jacob to love her. Jacob thought Leah had nice eyes, but he thought Rachel was graceful, beautiful and graceful. She's his favorite from beginning to end. But Rachel's also jealous because Leah's able to have baby after baby while she can't give Jacob Rachel gets Jacob's heart, while Leah gets Jacob's genetic legacy. So, not only is Jacob able to buy these two women from their conniving father, effectively making them his property, they also fight for his attention. They fight for his approval, his love, and over who can give him the most babies. Rachel and Leah's entire worlds revolve around Jacob. And so when you hear this text, it's hard not to see the point that so many critics from outside and inside the church have made. Certainly it's hard to judge the Bible by our own modern standards about the treatment of women. It's far too easy for us to sit from our 21st century vantage point and cast judgment on lives and situations drastically different from our own. But it's also hard not to take seriously the charge that the story of the Bible like so many other cultural stories, can sound like a men's history written for men, while women are supporting characters at best. Like so many other places in our societies and histories, Leah and Rachel and women like them have been pushed to the edge 
more often than not. It's a real problem. Some interpreters of the Bible on the more, of the more conservative persuasions suggest that the problem is our problem, not the Bible's problem, that the Bible points us towards a subordinate relationship between men and women, and that's what we should go with. Other interpreters of the Bible of the more liberal persuasion suggest we should simply put passages like this aside. They reflect the values of a mistaken bygone age, one where women were still considered property and where the male householder stood at the center. Now, there's something to both of these viewpoints. Some rightly want to remind us to take the Bible seriously. I myself share a commitment to the Bible's inspiration by the Spirit and its central place in our tradition as the faithful witness to God and Jesus Christ. But because of that same commitment to Scripture, I also believe the Apostle Paul's words when he says, there is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, we are all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean there are dif aren't differences, but it does mean that men and women, and indeed all humanity, stands equal in worth and equal in purpose before the Lord of all life, who is fully revealed to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so while we can point out that much of the Bible really does reflect the time that it was written, like so many other areas of life, countless women throughout Christian history have been pushed aside. The story looks like Jacob's story rather than Rachel and Leah's story. And truth to be, be told, we all, many of us come to a big bind when we approach the Bible. These two things seem impossible to reconcile. The Bible is our sacred text on one hand, and an ancient story that reflects the prejudice of his time on the other, when it comes to women especially. But you know, the thing about the Bible is that it's kind of different than other stories and other texts. The thing about the Bible is that its subject matter isn't us, ultimately. It isn't men or women. The story is ultimately about God. And this central character at the heart of the story is always challenging our biases, even when it comes to women, even when it comes to the text itself. From the get-go, Leah's story was Jacob's story. All she wanted was his love and pride of place in his household. This lack of love saddens her deeply, but she's not alone, the text says. The Lord saw she was unloved, so he opened her womb. God comes to her in her suffering with new life. But with each baby she has, she thanks God for this new life in the hopes that this will be the thing that finally makes Jacob love her. She sees her children and her God even as the ticket to the center of Jacob's story. That is, until the fourth baby, Judah. Scholars point out this strange change in her 
by the time the fourth child comes around. With the fourth child, she simply offers praise and thanksgiving to God. Later, we discover that this nobody, Leah, woman bought and sold, is key to the rest of the whole Bible. Her son, Judah, is the great-great-great-grandfather of King David, the most beloved king in the whole scripture. Yes, so that gives her an important spot, regardless of where you are. But even more so, those of us who seek to follow in Jesus' way, Leah finds herself in Jesus' family tree at the beginning of the New Testament. Not by name, of course. She's not mentioned by name, because this is the Bible after all. It comes to us in a certain time in a certain place. But it's her family line that gives birth to Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, and eventually the church, the people of Jesus. You could say that Leah's story is one of those top 150 popular stories of grace in the Bible. One that gets lost often in the telling in the sands of time. Lost in the way we usually tell the story. We need to reclaim and remember to tell the whole story of the people of God. Stories of Rachel and Leah. Stories of Miriam who shook her tambourine and sang for joy as the Israelites left slavery in Egypt. Stories of Ruth and Naomi who discovered God's love that shatters the boundaries of clan, race, and nation. The story of Mary who sets the pattern for her own transformation, saying yes to birthing God's love and mercy in the world. The story of Mary Magdalene, the first preacher of the gospel, and Junia, one of the first preachers and pastors of the Lord. And all the countless other women, our parents and grandparents in faith, who have carried God's story and mercy to a sin-stick, sick, and starving world. Because even though the Bible comes to us in the flesh and blood and attitudes of its time, it's always bearing witness to a God who isn't bound by our times, our own attitudes, or our prejudices. Leah's pushed to the edge, and women have always been pushed to the edge. But the edge and people on the edge is where God, are where God, is most at work. Ultimately, I don't think that this is just good news news for us, for those who are women, either. This is good news for us all. Martin Luther, when commenting on this passage, remarks that God, does God have no other occupation than to have high regard for the lowliness of the household? Even though the Bible seems like a story of great men, even though this passage, the spotlight looks like it's on Jacob, even though Leah's pushed to the edge of this story, it's not the great figures of history who God uses to bring about a whole new world. It's people made powerless by their circumstances and the times that they live in. That with this God, something so simple and ordinary as the birth of a new child kindness offered to those in need, justice for the hungry and homeless. These are all holy occasions packed with world-changing promise. With God, it's ordinary people like Leah who God brings to the center of the story. 
and brings new purpose, life, and meaning where there was none before. It's people like us whose lives, everyday lives, and small everyday decisions that might seem unimportant can be part of something much larger than ourselves. So, give thanks to God for the new life that we have been given in Christ and pray that it spills out all throughout history in ways that we could never know or see. Amen.